John chapter number five is where we're at. I continue working through the book of John. This is sermon number 12. We probably have 30 to 40 more of these to, to get through the book of John. But I love preaching verse by verse through the book of, of the Bible. And I think I could say we as a church, whole, collectively, love to do this. So here we are. We're going to bite off 18 verses of John chapter number five. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse number one. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Go by the guest center. We'd love to be, uh, give you a gift today and be a blessing to you. John 5 verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So if you followed kind of the storyline of John, Jesus was in Judea, uh, which is the region that Jerusalem is, south. Then he went Samaria, middle. Then he went Galilee, north. Now he's back there. So John is actually skipping large chunks of time here between Galilee and Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure which feast this is, but John skipped a, a chunk of time for sure. And Jesus is now back down in Jerusalem for a feast. And it says that there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Let me take a time out for a moment. This was a verse that about 30 years ago, critics of the Bible used a lot to criticize the Bible and to say, look, this is describing this pool. It has five porches. This obviously would have been big. Uh, Jerusalem's not that big. We've excavated most of it. We have no record historically of some sort of pool existing like this. This was made up. This proves that whoever wrote this wasn't close to the time of Jesus. This was hundreds of years later. Someone wrote this. It's legend. This proves that the historicity of the Bible is off kilter despite all of the other evidence for all the other places and people and all those sorts of things. Then something happened about 30 years ago that, what you know, archaeologists dug up this pool. Here it was, five colonnades, five porches, just as they had described by the sheep. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been here. I've been here to this pool. It's, it's kind of ironic. This was the only place where we were at where someone in our group fell and hurt themselves. And I'm like, here's the one place where a guy gets healed in the Bible, and here we are injuring ourselves. But <laughs> it exists. So what was used to criticize the Bible is now used as a proof for the Bible. So just trust the Bible is the bottom line. Just trust the Bible. Uh, verse number three. In these pools here around them lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. So when it says impotent folk, it means those are disabled, those that are unable to walk, uh, those that are helpless. And then verse number four, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. I have to give you one more footnote, okay? Because if you're not, I'm reading from the King James Version of the Bible, which is what we, we preach and we teach from. Uh, but if you're reading from a different version of the Bible, you may not even have verse 4. There may be a footnote. Uh, it may just say, like, see the bottom and then say something to the tune of, well, in some manuscripts, this verse isn't included in early manuscripts, but in other ones it is. So there's a lot of debate as to this verse. Once again, my, my approach would be just trust what the Bible says and just, and just go with what's on the page. But there's also debate as to, does this mean that there was a legend that they believed in, that this was happening and they thought it would cure them? Or does this mean that this actually was happening? I, I feel like I'm, you know, on repeat here, but just trust what it says would be my, my approach and what I would say. Just this doesn't say it's legend. This, this doesn't say that, you know, well, and then they thought it was this way. This says that this is happening. So here's 
these people that are wanting to be healed, there's some sort of miraculous thing taking place, troubling of the water, and first one in gets healed, a sort of endeavor. You say that sounds miraculous and, 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 and weird or fanciful. Yeah, it is miraculous. And there's a lot of miracles in the Bible. Verse number 5. There was, a certain man was there, and he had an infirmity of 38 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be healed? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. So here the story begins to kind of merge over to this idea and topic of the Sabbath. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it's the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. So they had, they had extracted upon the law and made up their own rules, one of which was you can't carry something. That's considered work. You don't work on the Sabbath. God said don't work, but there, you know, it means you can't carry anything. So to, to them, it was, hey, bro, what are you doing carrying your bed? You're not allowed to do this. This is wrong. You know, license and registration. We're, we're the miracle police. This is done wrong. You shouldn't be carrying your bed. Verse 11, he answered them, Boy, he that made me whole, the same said to me, take up the bed and walk. Like, I, I know, but this guy told me to. Like, he healed me, so I'm just doing what he said, you know? Verse 12, then asked they him, What man is it that said unto thee, take up the bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, or he didn't know who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. So Jesus had disappeared, and he's like, I don't know. A guy. He, I, I don't, he, I don't even see him. He's somewhere. I don't know. This guy healed me. That's all he knows. Verse number 14. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and saith unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole. So it's kind of bad enough that he doesn't cover for him in the first place. Like You would naturally think that if someone's nitpicking you and you just like got healed, that you wouldn't just completely blame shift to them. I mean, tell the truth, but, but he completely blame shifts to Jesus. And then when he finds out that it is Jesus, he makes a beeline and rats him out. So this is, you know, not great on this guy. 16, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, and this, this verse is just amazing. When you understand this verse, you understand this whole chapter, really. Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. So those are seven very brief words that most people would read and think, yep, have no idea what that means, and keep on moving. So we're going to understand what that means before this is all said and done, because that is a statement. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. I just want to walk through just what's happening here, what Jesus is doing piece by piece by piece. And I think that this is so picturesque of our own Christian life. And there's so much to glean of what has happened or what needs to happen in your life from this man and from this story. So first, I just want you to notice that Jesus initiates this relationship 
that here is this man who is laying by the bed, who doesn't know who Jesus is, isn't looking for Jesus, isn't trying to, you know, find him in any sense of the word. And even after he's healed, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. But Jesus comes after this man who's disabled for 38 years. And we're not sure if he's 38 years old and he was disabled as a child. I'm prone to think, and I'll tell you why later, that he actually was disabled and something happened to him when he was maybe in his teen years or maybe he was in his early 20s and now he's in his late 50s or 60 years old or something like that and has been disabled for 38 years. I will point out the text doesn't say he's laid by the pool for 38 years. Uh, Sometimes people think that, you know, he's been laying here for decades trying to get into this pool. And it doesn't say that. He could have just been there for three days for all we know. But he definitely has been handicapped for 38 years and Jesus comes after him. Jesus approaches him. Jesus initiates this with this man. And if you have relationship with Jesus or relationship with anyone for that matter, you get what this is like, that, that someone initiates the relationship. Every, every couple in the room or, or perhaps uh, you were a couple and, and now you're not due to divorce or due to a death or something like that. But if you've ever been married, you get this. You get that somebody actually takes the initiative and the relationship is the byproduct of someone making a first step. Raise of hands, how many of you guys, you had the day of epiphany first and you realized there's something special about her and I need to pursue her and initiate this and I made first steps. Guys, I'm not asking if you made the first steps, but how many of you ladies, you had the day of epiphany first and you sat back and you said, you should be pursuing me and you should be coming after me and there should be something here. And it just took them a little while to figure it out. Any of you ladies have that? All right, a few of you had that, right? So here you get that in a relationship. There's somebody, somebody took the first step. It's not like here's gal, here's guy. They see each other, they walk up and simultaneously they say to each other, hey, want to get a cup of coffee? And just, you know, say the same words and finish each other's sentence. That doesn't happen. Someone has to make the, the move. Someone has to, to take the first step. And when it comes to this man's relationship with Jesus, and frankly, our relationship with Jesus, we know that Jesus makes the first step. He initiates. He pursues. He comes after us, even sometimes when we're not wanting him to come after us. And, and we know that the only reason we love him is because he first loved us. The only reason that we have relationship with him or he's our savior is because he pursued us. We get what Romans 3 says, that that none of us are righteous and none of us really understand and none of us seek God, but Jesus put his love on display in the cross. He commended, he proved his love to us and that while we were sinners, he died for us and he initiates and takes the first step and he he wants us us to come to him and here he pursues this man and in like manner he pursues us but it's interesting to me what happens at the end of verse 6 that Jesus begins to rouse this man to change he asks a question at the end of verse 6 which is one of the most striking statements in the whole text to me that here he comes to to guy that's been lame for 38 years and he's laying there by this pool where where healing happens and he wants to get in and Jesus asks him this question Wilt thou be made whole? You want to be healed? Like at first glance, it almost seems like an odd question. Like, of course he does, right? Obviously he would want to be healed, but we're assuming that that Jesus' words aren't wasted. He wasn't trying to fill a word count or just speak empty syllables. We're assuming that Jesus sees in this man something inside of him that maybe he actually did not want to change or perhaps his his physical uh, paralyzation had had reached a paralyzation of his will 
That there's something here in this man that, that isn't indicating that he wants this and Jesus is trying to, to stir something up in him and help him remember and come to a point where, where this bubbles up inside of him. And you have to know that not everybody who's, who's sick, and I mean physically and spiritually, not everybody who's sick wants to be better. Sometimes you can spin your wheels and you'll come to realize that, you know what, they just, they were sick and they wanted company. The misery loves company. And they wanted other people to be around or maybe they wanted sympathy. They wanted other people to feel sorry for them and to look at them in their plight. Or maybe they wanted charity and they wanted those with large hearts to open up their large wallets and give them large gifts. There's a variety of reasons as to why someone perhaps would not want to be healed or would, would struggle with that. But some of you, in fact, you know what it's like to bemoan the fact that you're not well, but at the same time be scared to death that you'll get well. That this actually means that I will, I'll have to stand on my own two feet. That there's all kinds of responsibilities that I have to duck now, but then I'll, I'll have to actually take responsibility for. And this can happen in us. This apparently is happening in this man. And Jesus does his best to do an a intervention of sorts and to come to him and to say, hey, do you want to be better? Before there's how to, there has to be want to. Do you want this? Do you want to be healed? And the man responds to Jesus in verse 7. And it's amazing to me what happens in verse 8. That Jesus does heal this man, but it is after an admission that his old ways weren't working. And this is a point that I want to drive home this morning hard. That here this man is ultimately healed, but it's after he admits that my, my old ways are not working. It's not getting the job done. Hey, do you want to be healed? And what does he get from the man in verse number seven? I can't get anyone to help me. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I want to get in the water. But I mean, before I can get in, someone else does. And it's done. It's over. And I, I can't get anyone to help me. He does not say, Almighty One of Israel, you are creator of heaven and earth. Like, there's no theology here. There's no understanding here. There's no, you know, driving towards Jesus here. He doesn't even know who he is. All he does is admit that he's helpless. He admits that what I have been hoping in, what I have been trusting in, what I have been putting my effort in, this has actually no hope of delivering lasting change or some sort of contentment, and I don't know what else to do. And Jesus takes that admission that what he has been doing is not working, and Jesus heals him. And at this point, this is so, this is so indicative of your life in Christ, that Jesus initiates pursues, wants to woo you away from your idols. He comes to you and sometimes you don't even want him. You reject him, you shun him, you stiff arm him and, and he stirs you patiently, graciously, works on you and, and rouses up in you some sort of uh, desire for change and then he'll try to get you to a point where you realize what I have been doing, what I have been putting my stock in, what I have been trusting in is not working. And if you can get there and tell him that, that I'm, I can't figure this out on my own, then you can be healed. And I'm talking more spiritually than physically here, but this is a beautiful picture of what he'll do for you if you'll get to that point. And you have to, before you have forgiveness of sins, before Jesus heals you, before he gives you satisfaction of your soul, before you get there, you have to get to the point to where you understand what I'm trying to do myself stands no hope of delivering lasting change. It won't work. I, for uh, years, lifeguarded at a camp that I worked at during the summer. My dad ran the camp and we had 
thousands of kids come through during the summer. And uh, I, I still love the water, but I especially loved the water back then. And I really enjoyed lifeguarding. The YMCA Red Cross would come in, they would train us, and we'd do the first aid and the CPR and, and the water aerobics and all that sort of stuff. And <clears throat> I was constantly amazed in lifeguarding that no one ever said, help me, save me, come get me, until it was like they were done for. No one ever jumped in the water, doggy paddled a little bit, said, hmm, I think I can make it, but it's a long way, I'll call for help. No one ever does. They always wait till the very last moment. If you've ever done any lifeguarding, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that people will try every endeavor, every course of action they possibly can before they say, help or save me. Sometimes they won't even scream it. Sometimes they'll just, bloop, they'll just sink and they won't say a peep. I remember this, this, I think I may have told you about him before, but this kid, probably junior high, he could swim okay. But for whatever reason, he jumped in with uh, army cargo pants on. These, these camouflage, big cargo pockets, and he jumped in the water, went down, pushed up, and the, the pockets ballooned full of water. So he's out there, I mean, trying to get his head above water, not saying a thing. I'm just watching this kid thinking, he ain't, they ain't, you ain't swimming back here, man. I saw you jump in those pants. You're crazy. What are you doing? And, and sure enough, he's trying, trying, and just, down he goes. Never said a word, never cried out, never, and down he goes, blow the whistle, jump in, save the guy. That wasn't even trying to call out for help. And generally speaking, when it comes to Jesus coming after us, we try to exhaust all of our options. We have to be boxed into a corner and realize that everything we've tried to do has not worked and we actually need help and saving from the outside. But in our own pride, we don't want to admit that. We don't want to be there. And it's actually a very scary place to be. It's a, it's a needful place to be, but it can be scary to be at that spot where you realize that my own spiritual resources will not get the job done. Let me see. Now, you're going to have to put your, your thinking cap on. You're going to have to think with me a little bit. But I, I want to back up theologically and get a picture of this and see why this is so needful and see if I can explain this a bit more thoroughly. Romans 3 tells us that all of humanity is under the law, is, is the quote that it uses, under the law. And as such, we see our sin, we see our guilt, and, and we cannot stand rightly before God. Now, when it says that we're un under the law, what does that mean? It means that every human, no matter what culture, no matter what, what time frame they lived in, that every human, every person in this room, the person that is listed on your credit card, the person sitting in your seat, everybody knows that we should be better than we actually are. What it means is that all of humanity knows that there is a standard of living. There is, there is integrity. There is nobility. There is self-sacrifice. There's honesty. There's, there's moral consistency that should exist in us, but does not exist. That being under the law means that we feel the weight of the law. We feel the weight of here is where I should be. Here's where I'm actually at. And there's a gap. That the law describes to us what is right, what is holy, what is pure, what is noble, what is just, what is moral. And we see ourselves in contrast to that and we realize that we fall short, that there is sin in our lives, that there's, that there's, there's a gap between. In an effort to cope with that and to bear the weight of that freight, we will begin to invent our own coping mechanisms to try to help ourselves move through life being under the law. For example, 
all taught primarily about religious people, even people who would claim the title of Christian, and what they do. I'll give you secular briefly, but primarily because I know my audience. Here's what religious people will do. To cope with the way to being under the law, they'll run back to the law. They'll run back to the Bible and say, okay, I, I, I feel the gap. I feel like I should measure up. So I'm going to run to the Bible. I'm going to see what it says. And then I'm going to do my best to live a moral life. And I'm going to do my best to measure up. In an effort to do my best and measure up, I will take the law and I'll spell out intricately how I might keep that. And then if I follow these steps, then I can know I'm filling the law and then I can feel good about myself. If you understand this, you'll understand why the Jewish leaders did what they did for so long. Because we do the same thing. We can look at them and be like, why did you make up those rules? And why did you do that? But we do the same thing. You run to the law. I'll take the big two, okay? All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commands. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Those are the big two. So take those two. We run to say, okay, I should love God. I should love God. So if, if I were to love God, I want to be that. So what would a loving person toward God do? Well, uh, if I love God, I would go to his house. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark that down. I'm, I'm definitely going to be in his house, which I'm for you coming to his house, but not for the wrong reasons. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there once a week, twice a week, three times a week. I'll go to church. I'll be in God's house. If I love God, I would naturally talk to him. When you love somebody, you want to talk to him, right? So I'll pray. How long should I pray? 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half hour, whatever. Oh, 15 minutes. That'll be my rule. I'll pray 15 minutes a day. That would express my love toward God. If you love somebody, you give to them. You want to give them gifts. You want to bless them. So I'll be generous. What should I give to God? This percentage, this, I should, part of my tax return, I'll, I'll try to give to him. So now I can look and say, the law says love God. So I do love God. Look, I can prove it to you. I go to his house. I talk to him. I give to him. That shows that I love God. I keep the law. I should love my neighbor as myself. I, I should love my neighbor. So what would I do? Well, I, I will be gracious and I'll put others before me. So every time I'm in Walmart, I'll turn to the person behind me and say, would you like to go in front of me? And I'll be gracious to them and I'll love my neighbor and I'll put them first. I'll try to, I'll try to help them or bless them in some way. You know, I should pray for them. Not just myself, but I should pray for them. So I'll tack another five minutes on my prayer time and I'll pray for my neighbors and I should care about people. So three times a week, I'll ask people, how are you doing? What, I, what can I do for you? And I'll do my best to, to meet that need. So now when you say you should love your neighbor, I can say, look, I, I help people at Walmart. I let them go first. I pray for other people. I three times a week ask people. So I do love my neighbor and I do love God. I feel the weight of the law. So I will try to keep the law and so that I don't feel the weight of the law. But the problem with that is that when you read the law, it all comes crashing down. Because the law says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That you should have a heart that is completely submitted to and completely absorbed in God. That's what it says. One church father said, said it this way about your religion. He says, your, your religion is what you do with your solitude. It's what you do with your free time. When you have nothing else to do, when your thoughts can wander wherever they want to, where do they go? Do they reflect a heart that's completely absorbed in God and they run to Jesus? Mine don't. Nor do yours. They run to my aches and my pains and how I'm going to plan my vacation and what they said about me and how that bothers me and what they said about me and how that makes me feel good about myself. And they, they run all over the place there. The law says to love your neighbor as yourself. Not even better than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you meet the needs of your neighbor with as much force and as much vigor and as much joy and as much intensity as you meet your own needs? 
Are you really as happy for them when they get the promotion as when you get the promotion? Do you feel that sort of joy inside of yourself? You say, Pastor, no, nobody does that. Who actually lives like that? Exactly. Now you're understanding the law. The law is an outline of God's glorious goodness and his holiness and his perfection. And it shows us that God lives like that. But we, we, we do not. And that's the point of the law is to show you that you actually don't measure up, that there actually is a gap, that you're made for this kind of existence and this level of living and this sort of nobility and that you live beneath that with your love and your joy and and your honor. And when you try to take the law and make it a long list of rules and give yourself some sort of footing to where, hey, I'm doing A, B, C, and D, so naturally I'm keeping the law All you do is create for yourself a system that will eventually collapse upon itself. You create for yourself an anxiety and a restlessness in your soul that will never be fixed by you trying to measure up to the law. Your soul will have bags under its eyes forever. You will work and you will work and you will work and you will constantly feel as though you are falling short and missing the mark and you would be right because you are falling short and missing the mark. So most people double down on it, then they make more rules and then they, then, then they, then they control their own behavior and twist their own arm behind their back even further and I'll try to do more and I'll try to do more and eventually I'll feel good, but it never gets there. When you try to rest in the law, you eventually come to a place to where you're, you're very weary, you're spiritually out of breath, and you just, you can't do it. Try as you possibly might, you won't live up. You won't get there. You say, Pastor, you know what? I understand what you're saying. The law, the rules, the regulations, being so proud of your perfect attendance badge in Sunday school for the last 10 years. I've always despised those kind of people. I'm not religious. I mean, I go to church and I love Jesus, but I don't like religion. And I, I, don't, I don't like, you know, the religious sort of stuff. I'm, I'm not that type. I'm not self-righteous. I'm not legalistic. I'm not moralistic. That's not me. I'm not under the law. No, you are. You know, all of humanity is under the law. You may go about it a different way and try to solve the puzzle a different way, but nevertheless, you're under it and you feel the weight and you go about it. Everybody knows what it's like to feel like you don't measure up and you fall short and that there's, there's something you have to do to alleviate that pressure. And sometimes people become perfectionists. Some of you are perfectionists and you've told yourself it's because my parents were demanding or it's it's because of all the peer pressure and perhaps that added to it. But deep down, there's probably a spiritual seed that's taking root that you are trying to measure up to that, that level and have everything perfect and do everything the right way so that you can feel better about being under the law. Some of you chose a profession or you chose that a a societal strata that you wanted to be a part of. And you've told yourself that if I can have the acceptance and if this peer group or this social strata, if they can sign off on my life and they can put their stamp of approval on me, then I've made it. Then I will feel good about myself. Some of people in the military do this. If I can reach a certain rank or I can make it into the SEAL unit and, and through all of it, then eventually I'll feel good. Some of you have been told just forget what everybody else thinks. You don't, don't put yourself under that. Set your mind to what you want to accomplish. Don't anyone tell you that you can't do it. Be your own boss. Do what you, own, do what you want to. And then you become a control freak. 
Because it's up to you all the time and you have, to, you have to control your own destiny and you find out that you can't control your own destiny. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say there's a million outworkings of us feeling the pressure of being under the law and that we don't measure up and that God's holiness is more than ours. And deep down in all of us, there's a restlessness of our soul because in one way or another, we're trying to rise up to the higher bar and we're trying to do that in our own performance. We're trying to make it work on our own. We're trying to do this in our own power. There's an itch that we have to scratch. Do it in a religious way. Do it in an irreligious way. doesn't matter. You're still trying to scratch the itch. This is why everywhere you look, you, it's tough to find people that you want to model yourself after. Look inside of religiosity. A lot of churches, a lot of Christian churches that are supposed to be filled with Christian people, are filled with the most uptight, touchy, irritable, sensitive to criticism people you ever find. I thank God that our church is not this way. Not that we're perfect or we're never this way, but by and large, we're not. I personally believe it's because the true gospel has, has been through the church over and over and over again. But you find in churches that people, they fight more than anybody else. Why is that? Because they feel the weight of the law and they're trying hard. They're striving to try to measure up to that with the rules and the regulations. And if anyone dare impugn that, anyone dare say that you missed the mark or you didn't fall short, it reminds them of the guilt and what they're doing isn't working. So I don't, I want to eradicate anyone ever saying anything bad against me so I'll fight tooth and nail to try to preserve my own dignity and try to find that my way's working but look outside of the church to the secular world what do you find a bunch of well-adjusted people no you laugh because you know you don't people running from one self-help endeavor to another self-help endeavor trying to relax trying to find something that will give them peace inside of the soul in our default mode. Here's the point. Our default mode is that we're under the law and we try to solve this in our own power and we try to measure up and we try to be our own savior. And to get to a point where you receive spiritual healing from Jesus and you understand that He wants to heal you, that He wants to forgive you, that He wants to do this for you, you first have to get to the point where you realize what I'm doing isn't working. I am trying to go about this in my own power, but it has not and it cannot and it will not work. It won't work. I'll illustrate it this way. Bum Phillips. What a name. Bum. Bum Phillips, coach of the Houston Oilers back in the late 70s. He used to say that the road to the Super Bowl goes through Pittsburgh. Amen? He was right. Back in the late 70s, it certainly did, and I hope it, it turns around in the near future. What was Bum saying? In those days, Super Bowl's in sunny Florida. Nowadays, it can be in cold places. But the road to sunny Florida and the big dance and where we want to be, the big game, you have to go through cold, sleety, snowy, grinded out Pittsburgh. If you want to get there, you first have to go through the work of beating the Steelers and grinding it out in the city of Pittsburgh. And I would say in the same way, the Bible really says that the road to spiritual healing for you and your heart goes through the hard work of repentance. It's a scary place to be, but it's absolutely where you have to be. It goes through this understanding that for me to have healing from my sin in Jesus Christ, I have to wake up to the fact that my own religious endeavors will not cut it. 
They won't do it. They can't. It's impossible. You have to see what you're working in and what you're resting in and compare that to the work of Jesus and rest in Him and His work and decide that I'm not, I'm not resting in me at all. I'm going to rest completely and totally in Him. And this is the difference between a true Christian and a religious person that claims the title of Christian. A religious person who claims the title of Christian will confess their sins and say, I lied. I was wrong. Forgive me. I, I did... I, I was immoral. I, I, I didn't measure up here. I was wrong. Forgive me. A Christian will confess their sins and say, I lied. Forgive me. I was immoral. They'll do that. But a Christian will do something that a religious person who claims the title of Christian, but actually is not Christian, the Christian will do something that the other will not. They will confess their goodness. And they will say, I see Jesus lived a perfect life for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus canceled his own funeral and rose from the dead. And I am trying to earn his favor and to earn right standing with God through my morality and through my integrity and through my my own goodness. And it's this goodness that is damning me. It's this goodness that I need to see as spiritual pride and say, I lay that down. That doesn't stand a chance of saving me. I'm done with that. I walk away from that and I go strictly to Jesus. You have, you have to get to the point where this man is, where you realize what I've been trying to do won't cut it. It won't cut it. And then Jesus will heal you, and he will heal you. But you have to be there first. Is it a bit painful? Is it a bit scary? Absolutely, yes, it is. But it's needful and necessary to be there. If you've never been there, I don't care if you're a member of the church for, you know, since Jesus lived. I don't care if you, you know, have, have been baptized, if you've always claimed to be a Christian. If you've never realized that and you've been trusting in your own goodness in any way, and it's not strictly faith in Jesus, then you need to turn to Jesus. Because you haven't been saved. You haven't been saved. You have to turn away from it and turn to him completely. But then Jesus does something right after he heals this man. And he does the same thing to you. He does the same thing to me. He heals him. Awesome. Fantabulous. This is, this is terrific. But then he gives him a command that's definitely going to go against this man's grain. Immediately he tells him in verse number 8 that he needs to take up his bed and he needs to walk and he needs to carry that bed. Now it's the Sabbath day. Verse uh, 9 goes on to tell us. That when Jesus told him to do this, it's the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is one day a week, Saturday, that they rested from labors. Now, the religious leaders of the day thought that God missed the fine print. You know, God said, work or, or rest from your work. And God, you missed all the fine print, so let us spell it out and let us, you know, let us help you and let us tell you, you know, what exactly that means. And they they surrounded the Sabbath with a cloud of regulations and a cloud of things that you had to do. So one of them was you couldn't carry something on the Sabbath. So if you had a, a mat and it would roll up and fit on your back and you could carry it like a backpacker with a strap as quote unquote part of your clothing... You could carry clothing because you shouldn't be naked. So then the mat strapped to your back, that's okay. But if the mat is laying in your arms, not okay. You're working. I could give you a variety of different ways they did this. Uh, One that's funny to me at least is that uh, you can't do medicine. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's work. 
So for toothaches, they would, uh, they would use a lot of vinegar to try to help their toothache. So on the Sabbath, you can't take vinegar for your toothache. You're working, you're trying to heal yourself. But if you douse your food in vinegar and eat enough food with the vinegar on it, then that's okay because you're just eating your meal. And so on and so forth, it was extrapolated. So this man is breaking their code, not God's, but their code. And he is carrying his mat and they approach him and say, you can't do this. Here they come with their clipboard, you know. You were healed. Was this done by the rules? You know, and if someone gets healed and the first thing you want to know is, was this done the right way? Like, you have a problem, okay? So here are these people that are, you know, nice healing, wrong day, Jesus. Should have been Tuesday. And Jesus, when he tells him to do this, he knows it's the Sabbath. He knows what he's telling this man to do is going to be something that was culturally unacceptable. And he knows that these people are going to come after this man. He's not an idiot. He knows this. So he tells him to do this. The man says, I don't know who it was. He disappeared. And then Jesus comes back after the man. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus does what I would call, he goes after the deeper things. And you have to know this is a picture of your life. I'm laying there, Jesus initiates. I may not even want it. And he has to rouse something up in me to, to want it. I, I Finally, he brings me to a point where I realize what I'm doing isn't working. I turn to him. He heals me. And right after he heals me, he's going to give me commands. He's going to give me things to do that I may not even appreciate. But he's Lord, so he's going to act like Lord. And he's going to do that. And then he's going to come after some deeper things in my heart that I may not appreciate that either, but he's going to. Here he comes to this man and he tells him, in verse 14, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. He said, Pastor, what's that mean? Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. I could give you three or four hypothetical explanations. I'll only give you one for sake of time, the one that I think it is. Personally, I think Jesus is saying that your injury 38 years ago was related to some sort of sinful living. That you were living the wrong way and you were in sin and this led to you being injured and now I'm telling you, I'm reminding you of this. Don't go back to that. Don't sin. Walk away from that, lest something else should come upon you. Now, there's some other explanations that we could give, but I think that's what he's saying. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, although to this man I'm sure it doesn't feel like that, he begins to not just say, here's physical healing in the end, but he comes back in a deeper way, in a spiritual way, trying to claw at this man trying to unearth some things in his heart that need fixing and trying to help this man see his spiritual problem. And the man does this. Not thank you, Jesus. What's the man do? He runs away and he tells the religious leaders, found him, I found him, it's Jesus. He was the one that healed me, I know it, go get him. So apparently the man does not appreciate it. Apparently the man decides that, you know what, I'm, I'm not having this. And, and he is in on this. But Jesus, nevertheless, will do this to him and will do this to you. He'll redeem you. He will. And praise God for that. And he will forgive you of your sins and praise God for that. But Jesus will call you to a life of obedience and he will call you to a life of repentance. And that seems painful, but praise his name for it. When Jesus saves you, I can promise you he's going to be a savage and he's going to come after your heart. He's going to get in nooks and crannies that you want to be off limits and you want to barricade and you don't want anybody to mess with and you don't want anybody to fix or redeem that part of you, but he'll come after that part. 
If you come to Jesus and say, heal me, I I want heaven, I want you to be my savior, I want you to be my Lord, but don't touch my money and don't touch my marriage and don't touch my kids, that's off limits. It it won't work that way. It won't work because he will come after all of it. Now, all of this text hinges on verse 16, 17, and 18 because Jesus gets to do all of this if he's God. And he is God. So he gets to do all of what we've just talked about. If he's just a man, just a prophet, just another sage, then it doesn't make sense that he could do this. That he could heal us, forgive us, give, give us soul satisfaction. Come after us, demand our obedience. Go after our hearts in this way. He, he doesn't get to do this unless he's God, and he's going to make the point that he is. Look at verse 16. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. In their mind, all they know is, you broke the Sabbath, you told people to break the Sabbath, bad guy, we're coming after you. Persecution, and we're going to plot to kill you now. The the whole book of John is going to shift here. They're going to come after him. But Jesus just doesn't leave it there. Jesus comes to them and answers and says this, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. So Jesus here is not arguing over whether the man should be allowed to carry his mat or not. That was a made-up rule that the man was allowed to carry his mat, but that's not the discussion. The discussion is, Jesus, you did work on the Sabbath. And not working on the Sabbath is not a man-made rule. That's a God rule. The Sabbath was intended that man would do no work on that day. And that they would rest. And they're saying, Jesus, you worked on the Sabbath. You broke the rule. And what Jesus is going to say to them is what they knew to be true. They knew we can't work on the Sabbath, but God can work on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders knew God God doesn't need rest. God doesn't have a headache. God doesn't need a break. God doesn't need a time out. He doesn't need a nap. So God doesn't need to rest. Furthermore, we should not expect God to rest. God is engaged always in his creation. He's not going to detach from it. He's not going to say, okay, I'll keep the world running for six days and I'll just hands off for one day. God on the Sabbath can answer prayers. God can send rain. God can heal people. God can do what he wants to on the Sabbath because he's above the rule. He's God. He made the rule. He doesn't have to abide by the rule. He, he created it because he's God. So they understood that. And when they come after Jesus and say, Jesus, you worked. Jesus comes back at them and says, my father has worked all the way up until this point without end. Hitherto. He is from creation all the way to now. He's worked and worked and worked and worked and he's never taken a day off. And he's worked and I work. So do I. What Jesus is saying is that You haven't misconstrued that I'm working on the Sabbath. You have rightly assessed this, but the same rules that apply to God the Father apply to me. And they rightly conclude that Jesus was saying he was God. Now, they didn't believe him. They thought he was a heretic and they wanted to kill him all the more because of it. But they assessed what he said completely accurately. That Jesus is making a bold, audacious, unique claim 
that I get to operate by the same rules God operates by, not the rules you as humanity operate by. I don't have to respect the Sabbath and not work on it. I did work and I can work. That's my prerogative. That's what he says. Now, some of you have been told that Jesus never claimed he was God. So let me just make this clear in case, in case it, it isn't. A lot of people say, oh, it was legend. It was added later. You know, people inflated the text. Jesus never said this stuff. Jesus emphatically, clearly, openly, repeatedly, unapologetically, with tremendous clarity, said he was God. This is why they want to arrest him. This is why they want to beat him. This is why they want to flog him and nail him to a cross and murder him because he claimed he was God. And if this is true, and it is, if this is true, this means that Jesus can carry the freight of your life. This means that what Jesus is wanting to do for you and has done for you, it's his right, it's his prerogative, and he can deliver on what he promises. This means that the spiritual healing that you need, the soul rest that you crave, can actually be found in Jesus. If Jesus is God, this means that he can give you healing from having to try to prove yourself all the time. Some of you live your life based on what people say about you, and it's exhausting. What do they say? What do they think? What do they say? What do they think? And if Jesus is God, I dare say that his opinion not just matters most, but matters more than all of the opinions of, of all of humanity combined. And when you come to Jesus in humility and faith and you repent of your sin, Jesus says, I love you, I accept you, I forgive you, you're mine. There's unconditional love. And if he has loved you and you can rest in that, then why do you have to prove yourself to everybody else all the time? If this is true and Jesus is God, he can give you healing from your past and your shame. Jesus went to the cross and he bore your sins and he bore your shame. And in case that sounds outlandish, he was buried and he rose from the dead to prove that what he was doing actually was true. And no sin, no debt has to be paid for twice, humanly or in God's mind. You don't have to pay the debt twice. And if Jesus has paid the debt, you don't have to live with the guilt. You don't have to live with the shame. It's already been gone. It's done. It's taken care of. It's over. He can give you healing from self-importance. I needed this when I was in college. He can give you healing from taking yourself so seriously all the time. I noticed that when I really began to understand the gospel and understand who Jesus was, that my sense of humor began to change drastically. It was really difficult for me to take myself so seriously and stand on my own dignity when I realized that nothing I did merited God's favor and merited salvation, but it was completely what Jesus did. And that I had no dignity to stand on, that I, I could completely rest in him. And it's tough to be uptight about yourself when you realize that. If this is true and Jesus is God, he can give you healing from criticism. The whole world can say you're a reject. But if he says you're accepted, what does it matter? He's God. He, he can take the accumulated verdicts of all of your friends and all of your family and all that they've put on you and all of the criticism that they've given to you and he can obliterate it and overthrow all of that. He's the only one that stands a chance of giving you what you really crave deep down inside. So 
What do you do with this? You're in one of two boats. I'm done. Thank you for giving me your ear. I've been longer than I normally am. <coughs> Either you're in the boat where you realize that your religiosity is flimsy. And you're working and you're trying and you're attaining and your effort to, to make it work and to earn God's favor and be your own savior won't work. And you have to turn to Jesus. You have to realize that and put it down and walk over to him and put your faith in him and him alone. I don't care if you've been in church your whole life. I don't care if your grandma was a Christian. I don't care if you've called yourself a Christian. If you've been there, you're not saved and you have to lay it down and you have to go to Jesus. Perhaps you're not religious. You're irreligious and you've been trying to measure up and, and, and deal with the weight of the law in your own unique way. But nevertheless, you're resting in your own performance one way or another. And you have to do the same thing. You have to walk over to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him. Perhaps you've already come over to Jesus and you put your faith and your trust in him. My question for you is, are you weary in your soul? And if you are, why? And I can tell you why. It's because you've walked away from him. And you've stopped seeing who he is, what he wants to do for you. You've stopped allowing him to give you commands that go against your grain. You've stopped allowing him to meddle in your heart and meddle with your life and try to change you. And, you, and you've said, no, I'm good where I'm at. Leave me alone. And your soul is tired. And I don't have a soul meter to measure that for you. I have no scientific data to, to back it up. But you know what I'm saying is true. You know you feel worn out. Go to him. He wants to heal you back up. Now he's going to be Lord. He's going he's to tell you what to do. He's going to demand that he's in charge. You follow him, not the other way around. He'll do that. But if you go to him, he wants to give you rest. He wants to give you healing that you need and that you crave. 